Jen, and you're listening to A Thinker's Guide to the Beginning. In this mini preseason, you and I are focusing on who we are, why we're here, and what the hell we want to do about all of that. Together, I hope that we're going to savor the beauty and complexity of what it really means to be alive while we ponder the mysteries of your heart. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's podcast is sponsored by me and my voracious reading habit. Now until July 13th, you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. You can check out all the details in today's show notes. And I want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, to please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of all that business. Let's dive in. Today, in our very first episode, The Seed, you and I are going to go back to the beginning, or really more the middle of my beginning, to discover a blueprint of a story that you and I and Propeller Seeds may all share in common. Let's dive in. If there's one thing you really, really need to know about me, it's this. I eat stories like grapes. Not just any kind of grapes, but the kind of grapes that you wash and carefully like divine and then put in a big bag and you pop them in your freezer and you leave them there for at least 12 hours. So when you open them up, there's something heightened, amplified by how sweet they are, by the colder they get. I like other kinds of grapes too, fermented or not, but When it comes to stories, I want to know every excruciating detail. I want you to really tell me everything when I say to you, tell me everything. Which makes creating a podcast kind of challenging. Because I'm the only one talking. This is in some ways a one-way street. And as I've been thinking and considering what is this going to be and what kind of conversation do I hope it will be, I really do hope that it will be something that isn't just me talking and you listening, but that we might find ways to listen to each other, even when we don't have words. But we do need to have words, at least for today. And today I'm wanting to tell you about how stories matter to me. They matter more than I could ever put into words and Believe me, I have agonized, like, how can I put into words for these imaginary listeners who I'm speaking to how much they matter? And I think this is a huge part for me because stories and the fragments of stories have saved me from so many things, not the least of them being literal and metaphoric hells. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. I haven't even introduced myself. I know technically in the beginning of the show thing, I tell you who I am, but today I haven't introduced myself. I'm Jen, and I am attempting today to tell you who I am and who I'm imagining you to be, which frankly is a more difficult task than it seems. Or maybe it's just 
more difficult for me. And today, in our inaugural episode, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. Really, I guess, it's more the middle beginning. Middle of my beginning, middle of my beginning. I'm wanting to share with you this blueprint of a story that is not actually a very good story, but it's one that I carry with me and feels really important. And I, I think it might be a story not only of me, but, but of you too. And most importantly, the star of the show, these propeller seeds that I was obsessed with growing up. In order to understand the seeds, though, the most important thing you have to understand, I guess other than stories saved me, was that I was a fundamentalist once upon a time. It was a great while ago, or it definitely seems like it is now. And back when I was a fundamentalist, the world was Full of wonders, if only I could be pure enough to see them. Which was tricky because none of us were pure enough. There was sin tainting us in so many ways, and although we were sinful, we had nothing on the rest of the world. Because the thing that they don't ever tell you about growing up in an isolated and isolating religious sect is that it is really quite splendid, at least for the first little bit. You're told that you are the most special, the most loved, not just by anyone, but by the creator of the whole kit and caboodle, this assholy God who sits on a magnificent throne, condemning everyone. That grump has a soft spot for you. He likes you. In fact, I used to imagine that he had all of these TVs in his throne room, and I always hoped that I would be a number one hit on the God Network. Who knows if I was or wasn't. Back then, God lived inside you. It was a pretty simple process. You confessed your sins, which actually wasn't so simple because we were full of sin. And then you invited Jesus into your heart. And thus, you guaranteed your one-way ticket to heaven someday in the future. I always hoped further in the future than some of the people I grew up with. Then you were on the inside. You belong to this incredibly exclusive club. You're one of the important ones, at least to those who matter. Incidentally, they all lived on another plane of experience and existence, so aka heaven, but it didn't really matter because the world wasn't your home. It wasn't like you had to live here forever. Heaven was your destination. And if heaven's your destination and the world isn't really your home, it shouldn't matter if you're unpopular here, in the here and now. The only mission was to invite everyone else to come inside too. It felt pretty simple, but it wasn't. There was a more complicated task because how you invited people into the inside had a lot of rules. And living in this paradise, it wasn't easy. I can't even begin to recount to you all of the rules there were. In fact, my partner still teases me. He's like, you have so many rules. Like, yeah, the world is full of rules. If I can only learn all of them, then maybe I can figure it out. And growing up, some of them were explicit and some of them weren't. And often, if there wasn't already a rule for something, there would be soon after noticing that no rule existed. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, though, because as a kid, I didn't really pay much attention to the rules. 
at least in the beginning of the beginning. In the middle of the beginning, I started to feel overwhelmed because the rules initially felt more like the laws of physics. They just were. You were held tightly in place. And if you were to doubt the rules or doubt what would happen if you broke them, I mean, that was as ridiculous as taking a nosedive off the roof and expecting to sprout wings on the way down. We knew that didn't work. But eventually, you, really I, started to wonder, maybe maybe I already have wings. Maybe if I just jumped, I would discover something in me that no one else can see, only I can feel. And that's kind of the story I want to tell you today. It's the beginning of when I started to itch against the rules and get curious about the places you could fly away to. So let me be more specific. I'm talking in a lot of poetry and vagueness. There was a rhythm to being a fundamentalist kid. Sunday morning, you showed up, Sunday school. You didn't really get to ask a lot of questions. It was more about regurgitating information and getting really down into the nitty gritty into the order of the kings of Israel and what order the prophets went in and really all the ways that the earth would someday be destroyed when God came back to wreak vengeance. And then there was Sunday morning service. When you were really small, you got to go down to children's church, which is really just kind of a redux of Sunday school. Once you hit five, six, seven, maybe a little older, maybe seven, eight, That's when you started staying up for real church, for the Sunday morning sermon, which literally went on for at least 45 minutes, often closer to 60. And you would know that the sermon was almost done when you started to feel that really heavy feeling in your heart and your stomach, when you'd start to feel guilty about things that you didn't even understand what they were, but you knew, you knew that you had done something wrong. And as you started to feel the swell of shame, then it would be altar call. And once it was altar call, you could finally close your eyes and bow your head and daydream about other things, or feel more guilty and ashamed and walk down the aisle to confess everything you had never done, but imagined maybe you had. Then you got to go home and have lunch. On lucky days, your parents would take you out to eat. Sunday night, you'd come back. In my case, I used to come back and practice on the piano for an hour or two before the Sunday evening service and before choir practice, playing out chopsticks or fur elise or whatever it was I was working on in my piano lessons. And then Sunday evening service often was less dramatic or maybe not dramatic, it was less of an orchestra swell and more like a slow jazz beat. It was harder to follow. It was harder to understand the rhythm. And yet, if you listen closely, it would evoke darker things, more painful things. Often we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, as I'm sure you're probably not surprised, and it would have these convoluted, ways of understanding how the world worked. Eventually, oh, we didn't even talk about Wednesday nights, but Wednesday nights were basically just Sunday, but more. We had to put the Bibles together for all of the heathens in foreign lands, stapling them, collating, and men would go up and have their prayer meeting 
and the rest of us would go out and play. And we would always play, even after Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service. Wednesday night service always seemed to be the most fun. The adults weren't worried about getting back to work on Monday morning. The week was halfway over, and we got to run and run and run. And I I can't remember, actually, what service has happened after, what time of play this was. I do remember that it, it was dusk, but not dark. It was cool, but not cold. And I was somewhere around 11. I think I was newly 11, because I think it happened in the late spring. And I know that I was 11, because that was the year of the really big blizzard that we got to stay home for. And I had friends who were originally from Texas, and they were so excited that the Cowboys had just won the Super Bowl. It was also the last year that I went to public school. Fifth grade was glorious and wonderful, and sixth grade marked a turn to being homeschooled until I graduated high school. And it was that year, the year of being 11, the year of the big blizzard, the year of the Cowboys winning the Super Bowl, that I started to feel really uneasy about the rules. Not necessarily about keeping them, but about being able to keep them all straight. There were just so many. And I remember cataloging the rules in my head as I waited for my turn to swing on the tire swing. There was an old, I don't know if it was old, but it was definitely tall, big maple tree, silver maple tree in the back parking lot. And somewhere in my elementary school days, someone had put up a tire swing on it. So fun and so scary. Those of you who know me in real life, or I guess are getting to know me now in what is this digital life? Second life? This isn't second life, but I'm I'm not really much of a thrill seeker. Adrenaline is the worst physical sensation I've ever felt. I do not like it. And I, I felt that way then. I would stand in line and want to be a part of things but not feel good about swinging on the swing and certainly not feel good about our waiting in line activity because the the maple tree would drop these seeds. I don't know how familiar you are with maple trees, but they have these really interesting seeds. I've, I've heard them called many things, whirly gigs, spinners, helicopters, maple keys. I always call them propeller seeds. And They're designed to be caught by the wind and carried far, far away. At least that's how I used to imagine it. Factually, they're not really just seeds, though. They're samaras, which are basically just a very simple dry fruit. And you can look it up. They have this flattened, papery, tissue wing. And on our maple samaras, the seed bulged out on one side, and then it had just one wing. They were kind of like these one-winged birds or moths. I always thought that they would do better if somehow two seeds could connect and they could maybe fly away, like where their connection met would form a kind of hinge. Instead, they were just destined to spiral. They would head off in any sort of direction that we would drop them and often... We were crueler than just dropping them on the pavement. We'd 
pick them apart, if you picked where the seed was, where the fruit was, it would be sticky inside. And the seed would fall to the ground, and then you could stick the the winged part on your nose. And this is what we would do as we waited to fly on the tire swing. And I always felt really torn about it. I was curious about what was inside. And I wanted to fit in and to belong and for them not to give me grief, as they often did, because I often did not fit. But I also just felt really bad. I wasn't a gardener then, and I certainly am not a gardener now. But I had the sense that I was ruining the seed's life. That somehow I was interrupting the natural process of things. Because these seeds... In my mind, the story I began to tell myself was that they weren't meant for this. They weren't meant to fall on the pavement so we could pick them apart. They weren't meant to be amusements as we waited for a more fun activity. They were meant to fly away, like pirates stealing away for parts unknown, searching for adventure and treasure in places they could only find through intuition and just a little bit of foolhardiness. I didn't know it then, or maybe I did and didn't have words for it, but these seeds seemed to represent everything I thought I could never be. Could never, ever be. Because I was meant to stay home and grow. To be planted as a silent, caring Christian, ideally a housewife and mother, subservient to everyone but my own heart. And yet, there was this temptation represented by these seeds, to know, to do, to be more. It called to me. It's always called to me. But I was a fundamentalist. And if there was one thing that most certainly was not allowed, it was curiosity. So I buried my curiosity and I buried it deep. I tried to follow the rules even more intently. If I had been allowed to read Harry Potter then, actually, if Harry Potter had existed then, I don't think he had been written quite yet, uh, I would have, of course, identified with Hermione, even while I longed to be more like Harry and Ron. And so I followed the biggest rule. And the biggest rule was you should read the Bible, start to end, and bury in bed take in as much of it as you could, embed it onto your heart so you could be more like Christ. And that, my friend, is where the trouble began. Because here's another thing they never tell you. It is impossible to read myth and poetry literally. I mean, you can try, but that shit will fuck you up. I know in theory at least, that there are plenty of people who can go in and just read and memorize the facts and the figures without ever listening to the story. Stories are never actually literal, though. They just can't be. There's too much metaphor. There's too much something in them for you just to distill them down to A, B, and C, and then D. So reading the Bible did not go well. I aimed to swallow the lie that things were simple. It was hard. I I aimed to swallow the lie that we knew all the answers. That was harder. 
and I aimed to swallow the lie that things would continue to be as they always were, that the trajectory would only get worse and worse, that there really was very little hope. And that was hardest. But I couldn't keep the lies down forever. It was like having food poisoning in your soul. And eventually, I just couldn't swallow my bile anymore. And so I risked purging myself of all of it, choosing to leave childhood behind, choosing to try to catch the wind on my one beat-up wing. But I brought the Bible with me. We began as the chosen growing up, and we grew up to be the lost ones. I wasn't the only one to leave. Very few of those kids I waited in line to hang out on the tire swing with stayed in that land of rigid faith. A lot of them chose rigid disbelief, while others chose a variety of ways to numb out. Numb out whatever it is that happens to your insides when you grow up listening to countless hours of graphically depicted, graphically detailed horrors that will happen really any minute now, and that you... You were on this razor-thin margin of whether you were chosen or excluded. And it was really hard to tell, because feeling chosen, being chosen, felt very, very isolating. I don't know if I'm making sense. The thing is, you can't ever leave Eden empty-handed. Adam and Eve left with a clothing made of God's pity or shame, I'm not really sure, as well as the seeds of consciousness that they had taken in and had buried inside much like the way I buried the Bible and the lies inside. I left with the Bible. It was a treasure trove that seemed and still seems cursed all this time trying to make sense of what it means to be alive, and eventually, what will it mean to die? And there is plenty of horror. But with that horror, there's also this nagging knowledge that there were and are seeds of truth buried in me, and in this rigid dogma that I grew up in that demanded allegiance, that there's truth there. If you can peel away all these layers. I think the dogma, not just of Christianity, but Islam, of Hinduism, of all of these world religions, and I don't know, of Nietzsche, of Hegel, of Heidinger, of the philosophers and the poets, the Rumis, and the, I'm trying to think of all my favorite poets off the cuff, E.E. Cummings, that there, there is truth if you can peel it back, if you can look underneath the story to see the structure, or maybe look underneath the structure to see the story. I don't, I don't know which comes first. Growing up, even though I don't believe really anything that I grew up with, I can feel that I encountered something way, way beyond literal understanding. Something like the beginnings of the story of who and what and why things are, we are. And I think stories have a kind of Fibonacci 
I don't know how to say that correctly, kind of quality. You know that that mathematical spiral that that grows and shows up and is patterned over and over and over again in a wide variety of places. Stories, they spiral out. It seems random, but if you really pay closer attention, you start to realize that the patterns are the same over and over and over again. Even when you think you have the most unique, the newest, the coolest, the freshest story, you realize if you're willing to really look that it's just another arc that is reminiscent of an old story you once heard. Or weirder yet, a dead ringer for a story you could swear you had never heard, certainly didn't know, and way predated your own tale. It's hard to tell you this story of being a fundamentalist, not because it's not true, but because it's only the beginning. And of course, I'm worried that you'll judge me and think, oh, maybe Jen is still secretly a fundamentalist in disguise. Or maybe I'm more scared that maybe I actually am still secretly a fundamentalist in disguise, and I haven't found the way to break open the seed to see what's actually inside. <sighs> there are plenty of facts and figures I could certainly tell, tell you about why you should trust me, what marks of authority I have, other reasons that I'm endearing and relatable and fun and how much I like to swear. But honestly, you don't know me well enough yet. I have all that stuff. You could certainly go ahead and Google me or read my bio if you really want to know it. I, I think what's more important for you to know about me today is my stories. How listening to them, how telling them saved me from hell. Hell is rarely dramatic, by the way. I mean, I know it sounds that way. And it really could paint you some pretty vivid images of it, as depicted in those childhood sermons and other things I've read along the way. But really, I think hell at its core is separation. Separation from justice, from peace, certainly from pleasure, from freedom, and ultimately from reality. In childhood, we always talked about it as separation from God. And I'll be quite frank with you, I do not have a clue about who God is or isn't, and if God even is. I like the idea that God exists, but maybe it's just because that's how I grew up. I think though, if God does exist, then God must embody everything that ever was and is and will be. And thus, in that case, separation from God is separation from being. Story woke me up from doing, though I'm constantly falling back asleep and joining the productivity rat race. Story woke me up to the potentiality of those seeds, to the possibility that I could be and do more than I ever dreamed of be, simply by being me. The story I told you today isn't just mine. It may be yours too. If we sopped out the specifics, you might also have your own story of exile and then the seeds of hope. Maybe it goes something like this. Paradise has always demanded that you abide to the rules. It promises, in direct and indirect ways, what will happen to you if you obey or rebel. But then, there's this thing. This thing that is so complex precisely because it's right there and totally and completely off limits. 
you will likely resist it in a variety of ways. You're not weak. You're strong. You will ignore it. You'll work to do the opposite of it. You'll maybe even work to transform it into what is allowed. Until one day, you realize that you gave in long ago. You, you didn't even realize that you had partook of it until you're three months in. And really, in the end, partaking in forbidden fruit isn't so much giving in to temptation. It's more about allowing yourself to wake up to what and who you really are for good and for ill. But if confronted, it's easier to hide. It takes courage and a fair amount of foolhardiness to actually tell the truth especially when the only benefit that the truth offers is that you won't feel like a hypocrite in that desert of exile. The lie is easier when you can believe it yourself. And in fact, you might be the only one you're lying to. When given a chance, maybe you discarded the truth and chose the lie. Because it's better the devil you know. Except, eventually, the lie will turn to dust. You can't put the fragments together anymore, and you wonder why you're even trying to. Eventually, you may find yourself choosing truth in exile over peace in paradise. And yet even when you walk out that door, that gate, that life, you'll find yourself marked by the encounter. A variety of thoughts and beliefs will jangle in your pocket like loose change. And you imagine someday you might be able to trade them in for something else. But for now, it's really helpful to have souvenirs of what used to be home. Stories, they unite us. And they certainly divide us. And that sounds like a bumper sticker or a country song. But in the end, I really think that underneath all of the flourishes, all of the details, all of the context, a lot of our stories are really the same underneath. There's many archetypes of what it means to tell a story and to be in a story, and not to mention archetypes of stories. And I want to encourage you to think about your own stories. What stories do you tell about yourself and tell for yourself? How have your stories saved you? How have they damned you? And I know it's tempting sometimes just to say, oh, interesting thought, But I'd encourage you to find a way to be in dialogue with this kind of question, if not this question, then another, to journal, to make yourself an audio file in your phone, or to talk with a friend, to talk to somebody close. And if you don't have anyone you can talk to, I promise you, I eat stories like grapes. I'd love to hear your story. I want to hear all of it. Feel free to drop me a line. All of the addresses and stuff at the end of this episode, so you can check it out. And until next time, I hope you have a deep and meaningful day. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your depth, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. I'd love for you to head over to therapyforthinkers.com slash reading habit to learn how you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. Remember, you only have till July 12th, 2020 to enter for your chance to win. 
As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.